I think that I really do push myself and I needed to prove to myself because it's a scary thing to say, this brand new thing that I know nothing about, I'm going to put all my eggs in this basket as opposed to doing what my sister did and every other person I've ever seen succeed. I'm not going to follow that path and I'm going to do this brand new thing. That's really scary. Welcome to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan, and today I'm wondering about fame, influence, and whether it's possible to even live an authentic life when your job puts you in front of millions of people every day. My guest is YouTuber, comedian, and author of Be a Triangle, How I Went from Being Lost to Getting My Life in Shape, Lily Singh. She's amazing, so join us. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. If you love listening to true stories from people all around the world, then we have the perfect recommendation for you, the Moth Podcast. Each episode features people from Moth events around the globe, sharing diverse and honest stories of love, resilience, change, heartbreak, chance encounters, unbelievable calamities, and everything in between. Episodes drop weekly. Find the Moth Podcast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan. There are a lot of ways to make a point, and art takes many forms. So if you find a creative person with a strong perspective, she'll find any means necessary to share it. Lily Singh is a 33-year-old Canadian who has been making YouTube videos since 2010, the collection of which recently passed 3 billion views. Her messages include, don't be a bully, stop judging each other, and curiously, be a triangle. To the 14 million fans of her generation, she is a lifeline and a foundational voice. For the rest of us, she's an education in American culture circa 2022. Here's my conversation, originally recorded for my PBS show, Tell Me More, with comedian, maker, entrepreneur, and sometimes disobedient daughter of Malvindar and Sukhvindar, Lily Singh. So you're a kid in Toronto. Yep. Your parents are Punjabi. They came over in their 20s. Mm-hmm. And you're a very modern kid. You go to college. <laughs> And instead of coming out to do uh, a regular job, mm-hmm. like people of my generation might, <laughs> you said you're going to start making videos. Did you have some sense that you were going to make a whole lot of them for a whole lot of people? Or was it like, I'm going to make one? I literally thought I was going to make one. I didn't even think I would post that one, to be honest. I discovered YouTube. I vividly remember one of my friends came up to me in university and said, there's this website called YouTube and you post videos. And I was like, it sounds dumb. It sounds dumb. I don't get the point of it. And so for so long, I ignored it until finally one day it came across me probably on MSN Messenger or whatever the kids were using that day. And I was like, this is really cool. Someone is in their house just speaking their mind to camera and no one's telling them what to do. And so I thought, I'm going to make a video. Didn't know how to shoot, didn't know how to edit, didn't know anything about the process. Didn't even think I would post it. It was a spoken word piece that was very bad. Uh-huh. And is it still up? Did you take The first it down? one is not. The second, third, fourth, fifth <laughs> video is. Did you take it down? Those are all equally as bad, so don't yeah. worry. The entertainment value is still there. Um, and I posted this video thinking, oh, that was fun, I guess. And then I think like 70 people watched it. Uh-huh. And I thought, I don't know 70 people, so now I'm famous. <laughs> but I fell in love with just this process of learning how to do this and being able to say things with no one kind of gatekeeping what I would say. And so then I posted a second, third, fourth video and it snowballed into me saving up for a camera and teaching myself how to edit. And into for years, I did two videos a week. And you have like you did a thousand. Did I have a over thousands of videos now. Yeah. Were you a theater kid? Absolutely. You said my parents were Punjabi, right? (laughs) So no, I was not. Um, I, growing up, loved to dance. I loved to be involved in entertainment in terms of like the middle of the dance floor at a party. Really loved music. Really loved baking. Anything that was a little creative, I loved. Never thought it could be a career. That just seemed absurd to me. What was your major? Psychology. 
just because my sister did it. That's the only reason I did it. Did you like it? No. <laughs> I think I was supposed to say yes, but the answer is no. no. I didn't like it because, it, well, that's not where my heart was, but it was also just a lot of reading about things that are glorious, wonderful things. But then I always remember the last sentence of every chapter would say, but this is just a theory. And I'm like, no. Right. So I just needed something a little more creative than that. Yeah. And maybe something firmer. Yes. Correct. Yeah. And perhaps shorter. <laughs> <laughs> and you said to your parents, thanks for college. Yeah. I'm going to make some YouTube videos. And they <clears throat> said, what? So I was actually applying for grad school when I was like, had a few videos. And I was What like, were you going to go to grad school? I was going to go for family counseling, counseling, psychology, anything related to counseling. The subject you love so deeply. Usually broken people gravitate towards counseling. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh-huh. that was me. And so I was, you know, thinking of what I'm going to write in this essay for grad school. And literally in the middle of the essay, I stopped. And I was like, I can't fathom doing this for two to four more years. I just can't get myself to do this. So I closed my computer in that moment, walked into my parents' room, and I said, Mom, Dad, I don't think I'm going to go to grad school. Rather, I am going to make videos on YouTube. (laughs) How to go over (laughs) There was a silence, a long silence. My mom was just like, what? You're going to do what? Because they didn't understand YouTube. And not only them, a lot of people didn't understand YouTube. This was 2010. Yeah. And my dad said, without knowing, the best thing he could have said to me, which was, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm going to give you a year to figure it out. And so that's what started the clock for me is I have a year to make this into something, into anything. If not, my parents are going to expect me to go to grad school. And on top of that, I'm going to expect myself to do something else. Yeah. And so from that night, I started watching so much content. What are other people doing? How are they doing it? How are they editing? How do you edit? How much is this camera? And I just dedicated every waking moment to learning how to become something, anything on YouTube. And what did you become? Like, how would you describe who you were to those initial followers in those first few months? Definitely a lot of experimenting. My mm-hmm. first couple of videos were not comedy. They were tutorials, spoken word pieces. Oh what Q&As. were you giving people tutorials in? Just anything. Like anything I knew how to do. Or? One of them was how to tie a turban because I was the captain of a dance team and I knew how to do that. One of my videos was um, a, a, a little bit of a debate thing about how to say certain words in Punjabi. So it was very niche. Uh-huh. And it was just what I was talking about with my friends. And it was kind of bad. It was not good. But people were watching. Uh, people watching, I think, and this is to answer your question, I think I was talking about stuff that people had never seen anyone else that looked like me talking about. And I really hit my stride with, I think, my maybe sixth or seventh upload when it was A Guide to Brown Girls. That's what it was called. A Guide to Brown Girls. And I was talking about relationships and parents and all these things. And all these brown girls were like, oh, my God. I have never seen someone talk about this thing that I thought only I, me and my friends, talked about. And so I was talking about things that kind of brought this community of people together that was really, really awesome. What is the Guide to Brown Girls? Oh, well, how much time do we have here? (laughs) (laughs) I was talking about we're born a certain way, we're brought up a certain way, and so we have certain expectations when it comes to relationships. You know, we we understand a lot of guys in our community think this way about us, but like, this is how we really feel, and we have this rebellious side, and... I was very outspoken and I, you know, was loud and had a back, backward snapback on and I was just breaking so many rules. You had a what? A, a backward snapback snap on? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, I, talk- I got it, but I am just I, am to I slow talking, that down a Am I talking bit? millennial? For the viewer. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. A backward snapback. A hat that I wore backwards, I'm baby. There. I'm there. I mean, um, I got there. It just took me like one beat. Thank you. I have been told parents watch my videos on a reduced speed. <laughs> So oh my God. I hope that option exists. Here. Yeah. 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 Um, and so after a year, mm-hmm. what were your sort of stats? What did it look like? And was your father satisfied that this was going to work out? More than anyone, I was becoming satisfied, which was very important to me. Because I think as high as my parents' expectations were, I'm going to say something really profound here for me. I think my expectations were higher. I think that I really do push myself and I needed to prove to myself 
Because it's a scary thing even for myself to say, this brand new thing that I know nothing about, I'm going to put all my eggs in this basket as yeah. opposed to doing what my sister did and every other person I've ever seen succeed. I'm not going to follow that path and I'm going to do this brand new thing. That's really scary for, for a sure. person, right? For sure. So uh, at the end of a year, I know that I had developed the skills to keep doing what I was doing. I had garnered a following. I don't know exactly how much, but I know that I had a party and it was called a Millie for Lily. I don't know if that was exactly one year. It might have been a year and a half, two years. But what I can tell you is the moment that I knew for sure I could do this. And it was actually the first time I traveled to Bombay in India. I have been to Punjab many times with my family. Never gone to Bombay, which anyone that's watching, it's like the Hollywood of India. Yeah. I went for an event called YouTube Fan Fest. So nervous. Uh-huh. I was to go on stage and I was just to, you know, do my parent imitations and talk to the audience. It was a 15-minute segment. And I was side stage. So nervous. And I heard the audience start chanting, Lily, Lily. And I remember the feeling because I felt nauseous, truly, thinking these are thousands of people that literally live across the world uh-huh. that know my phrases and are wearing my merch and know my videos. And that's the first time I saw in my life the impact the internet had in person, the impact uh-huh. that YouTube had. And so... Once I knew the Indians had my back, I was like, this could be something. There's so many of them. <laughs> but there's I a think billion there's people a billion, here. one in four people in South Asian. It's perfect. Right. It's perfect. Uh, no, but truly, I think that was my eureka moment of thinking this could really, really be something. And then there is this period where, I mean, I create content myself, where you have to decide like what you want to put into the mm-hmm. world and how you evaluate your own stuff. Like, is it useful? Is mm-hmm. it positive? Is it corrective to mm-hmm. society in yeah. some way. At what point did you look at your work and think, what do I want the sum total of all this to be? If, so, if somebody followed me mm-hmm. and watched all 1,000 videos, what should I have given them? I think my answer to that question has changed. I think in 2010, when I started making YouTube videos, to 2016, 17, my goal was numbers. I'll be very honest and say, Thank my you. vision board had numbers on it. Right. It had subscribers. It had a verification sign on it. It had views on it. Uh-huh. Um, you had the blue check. It, the blue check, baby. That's what I wanted. But um, I chased those numbers for a lot of my career because that's how I valued myself. The, the hardest part about how I started my career was how I got paid, how my influence was measured, how I would be hired for things, how brands would work with me was all based on that view count and that subscriber count. Right. And that got into here oh, it doesn't matter what I'm making, it just has to make, we have to get those views. So even if this is a video that I don't really think is the funniest and it might not be that creative, I know it's going to get those views. Right. And that's success. Or and you it, could just keep stamping out sort of slight variations on the exact same Which is exactly theme. what I did. Mm-hmm. My parents react to, insert any music video, any word after that. And uh-huh. I know people are going to laugh because my parents have these quirks and they're going to... Yeah, yeah. And then, I don't know if it was... Age mixed with life experience, mixed with me learning about the industry I'm in, mixed with just exhaustion. (laughs) But I Uh hit a point where I was like, this is not fulfilling me. And it could still get the views, but I don't care anymore, to be honest. Because every morning what would happen is I would wake up and once I hit that, that number of views, I'd be like, okay, now a million more and a million more. And that never stopped. My first vision board, I was just in my childhood bedroom has 5 million subscribers on it. I have 14.7 now. And when I hit 5, 6, 7, 8, I never felt that I did what I wanted to do. It was always, now I need a million. Get to nine. Now I, I need to, to do to this. Yeah. And that's going to keep going with yeah. numbers that keeps going. Numbers never fulfill you because there's always a higher number. Yeah. And so now how I view my content is, am I going to have fun? I think I thought that was selfish for a long time to think that way. But now I know no, I want to have fun in the things. I only do things now that I think I'm going to have fun doing. Um, do I think this is a good thing that needs to exist in the world? Like, is this useful? Is this going to help people? Is it going to show them another perspective? Is it going to brighten their day? Or is it just noise, more noise in the world? Right. You know? Right. And so now I ask myself all those types of questions because I've done the numbers thing. Yeah. And... That doesn't get you anywhere. I am thinking about this thing that my podcast producer said when, you know, we were watching our numbers too, mm-hmm. right? Because you can't stop. Yep. And everything is quantified. 
for everyone. I, you know, sometimes when you think about people knowing how many steps they took and how many calories are in their mm -hmm. drink and then how many people liked their Instagram post and then how many people dropped off as followers yeah. today. Like you could live a completely quantified life. Absolutely. And when we hit a million something on the pod, our podcast producers, I said, God, that means by such and such a date, we'll hit two million. And mm -hmm. he said, and then what? Yeah, yeah. And I wrote down, and then what? And I was 50-something when I had this realization. So I just want to say congratulations because you got to the wall way faster than most people. Like, you're a very young person to have some sense that that's a never-ending treadmill of nonsense. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm grateful to be in this position. I think it's because of the career I've had that kind of forced me to have that lesson because it is such a fast-paced, 24-7 type of career on social media where yeah. there is no punching out. There is no right. person above you saying, okay, that's you did it. It's just you and your, your own kind of craze of trying to yeah. get where you want to get. So there's a lot of talk about your generation. <laughs> what do we misunderstand? You're hitting me with that right away? I'm going right. right for the top. Listen, I think my generation is one that often gets labeled as entitled, lazy, impatient. Mm. And sometimes, yes, that may be true. Mm. <laughs> I'll say it myself. But I think my generation is also the one where we're just the most creative when it comes to what is possible, what direction we want. We're very entrepreneurial in ways that I think no other generation has been. No offense. No other generation has been. I'll deal with that later. Yeah, but I think, you know, we really break the mold of how to get from A to B. and Or if getting to B is even possible. And if we don't want to get to B, we go to B2, B3. It's just we right. really are breaking the mold of, of what we've been told is possible in the pathway to get there. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like you're a generation for whom impatience and maybe iconoclastic thinking is mm -hmm. really serving you. Absolutely. It's like, I don't want to take the 45 steps. Absolutely. I don't want to get three degrees. If we can be creative and take the two steps but get the same result, right. who's smarter? That's, That's right. Who's smarter? Fair enough. Fair enough. But you're throwing us all off. All these people who took 19 steps to get where you got into. The only way people know a new way is possible is because someone has shown them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But it's like, even my job to get into entertainment Back in the day, that would be a casting director, an agent. Yeah. You need to do X, Y, Z. Headshots. Exactly. Head. Being commercial. I've never done a headshot. You've never done a headshot. I've never done a headshot. That's amazing. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, and I you found a new And you surely didn't way. start with an agent. No. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a man. I had no one. Books. A stack of books as a tripod, and I, I light a really crappy lamp as a light, and just figuring out how to edit and shoot and do all things myself. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. What do people misunderstand about you? <sighs> I think because I have so much content online and yes. in that content I'm, you know, loud and I'm goofy, people think that that's a persona. Yes. When really that's kind of, you know, that's before yeah. we're rolling, that's kind of who I am. I'm yeah. kind of goofy. But that doesn't mean that I can't also then be spiritual or deep or serious. I have layers. And I think because there's over a thousand videos of me being one way with a backwards hat, yes. people have this misconception that that's either a persona or that's the only thing I can be. Yeah. And they can't really decide between the two. So I think I just want people to know that I... Like a human, have layers. Yeah. And in different situations, I'm a different person, you know? Right, and, and wouldn't it be nice if we gave everybody mm -hmm. that wider berth to Absolutely. say, like, oh, this is a very serious time for you, or this is a very moving time, or this is a very funny time. Or, Absolutely. You know, that you're... We shouldn't be so surprised that yeah, people have... People are complex. ...variety and, within them. Especially as someone who... Do, has new experiences every single day. And I mean that in the sense of, like, I have very extreme experiences every day. Yeah. Like, yesterday I was doing nothing. Today I'm on this roof with you having an amazing <laughs> conversation, you know? I'm going to learn new things about myself in all those situations. Yeah. It's good to be young. I mean, I hope everybody's learning new things about themselves every day, yeah. no matter how old they are. But you must Absolutely. be in a period where you feel like you're, like... We're, like, the same like, age. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. We're more or less the same age. She said it. I didn't. Coming up next, Lily tells me about coming out to her parents and the way she chose to do it. We'll be right back with Kelly Corrigan Wonders. Welcome back to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan and I'm talking with YouTuber, comedian, and author Lily Singh. So at some point you came out to your parents, you're yes. bisexual, yep. and you wrote, instead of telling them, you wrote them a letter. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, was out. 
God, no, really. You know, I, when I came out at the tender, tender age of 30, I only How long had you known? So, I don't know if it was the result of just not being raised in a community that had queer people. I came out to people six months after coming out to myself. And now when I look back at childhood photos and think about it, people are always like, but you had to know. And I'm like, truly? Unless I was really good at convincing myself, I truly never thought that was the case for me. I just thought, oh, I love wrestling. And oh, like, maybe, I don't know, like maybe this one guy's annoying. And maybe like, I'm really, I just couldn't put the pieces together. And that's because in high school, there wasn't a single out person in my entire high school. Mm-hmm. In university, I knew one queer person who was so different from me. He was, you know, he identified as a man who was so different. I was like, oh, that, that's not me either. It wasn't until I moved to LA and I even was introduced to the idea of queerness that I got to thinking that, huh, maybe this is this thing about me that I've never been able to figure out. So one month before my 30th birthday, I was in my bedroom and I was like, I think you need to have an honest conversation with yourself because I think although you've been in happy relationships, I don't think you've ever been 100% yourself or satisfied and I think you really need to figure this out and I just said it out loud I actually said it to my dog he was the first person I came out to he was very supportive (laughs) Um, and when I said it it just felt right and I knew in that moment I was like you know what I think here's the tricky part though and and here's where I'd be very vulnerable because I didn't have this experience and I was so uneducated about queerness I never actually got the chance to really experiment a lot of people that come out say well I knew because I had this, you know, secret this and secret that and these feelings. I was just been so reserved as a person always. And so when I started to experiment was when I came out. So now I'm at the age of 30, had just come out as bisexual, have to learn how to flirt with girls, have to learn how to even just... The first time I was ever on a dating app, I swear I think I messaged a girl and I said, what up, sis? And I was like, no, no, that's not right. That's not right. That's not going to work. That's... You don't want this. I cis-zoned her and right away. I don't even know what the cis I mean, I get it. I'm getting it. I got it. Um, so you leave this letter. Right. So, so going back to your story, I went on a tangent. But having said that, so I made a list of people saying in the next 30 days before my 30th birthday, I'm going to come out to these people. Very mm-hmm. type A of me. Mm-hmm. Very, my parents were the last on that list. Um, I was at their house visiting in Toronto could not get myself to say it in person. I And I, you know what? I don't regret that because I think I gave myself permission to just find a little bit of comfort in an uncomfortable situation. Mm-hmm. I wrote the letter, dropped it off in front of them, and I said, read this, I'm going to be upstairs. Do you think your parents had ever known somebody who was queer? No, never. Uh-huh. Never. Or if, if they were, they weren't. I don't even think that they had the experience of knowing what that is. Completely, to be honest. Uh-huh. Did you have to define terms in there? Um, they may have Googled. <laughs> I'm not sure. They may have Googled. They, they Google everything else. Uh-huh. So they may have Googled. But I think they, they're they continuing to learn. That could be quite a shock if yes, you were to Google. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I, I, I wrote them this letter and I ran upstairs and waited upstairs for what felt like an eternity. And what happened when they got there? And they, I heard, I heard silence. Always just the silence. Always with the silence. And I heard the silence. I heard them coming upstairs. I was just an emotional wreck, to be honest. I was just so scared and so nervous. And, and to anyone watching, the experience of coming out, it really messes with your mind in the sense that even though, even some of my friends that I knew would be so supportive, your brain has a way of convincing you just that this is going to be so scary and so horrible. And it convinces you of all these horrible things. And so I was really just a wreck. I think we're programmed for that. I mean, I yeah. think it's evolutionarily wise to expect the worst and be on guard. Right. Your defense mechanisms are just working on overdrive for sure. Uh, the first thing my mom said was, why are you crying? You're my daughter and I love you. Oh. And they said, pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty Amazing. Good. I write about this in my upcoming book, which is in that moment. Your book will be out when this comes out. Okay, perfect. I write about this in my book, Your Triangle, where reflecting on this moment, I had way too high of expectations from my parents. I think they said all of the right things, perhaps not in the exact words I wanted to hear them in, but I was just so scared and vulnerable and probably insecure also that I just got so defensive. And I was like, oh, well, you you don't don't love me anymore. They fully said they love me. Uh You don't want to support me. They 
didn't understand completely what I was saying, but they did support me. They sat me down, they hugged me, they did all those things. You know, I think that experience for months and probably years after, I created a little bit of a rift between me and my parents because maybe I just needed to figure out how to function as my new self. And I kind of projected that onto them. It's like, they didn't say exactly what I wanted them to say. And so they're not going to understand my lifestyle without giving them the credit that they actually did pretty darn good Mm -hmm. for being who they are and where they're from. Well, I think think it's really interesting to give people credit for their own personal circumstances and to sort of factor in the totality of a person and then gauge from there, like, Mm -hmm. what is reasonable? What would be an A-plus response right now for this person? Yes. Grew up with this life. Which is so important. And that's a lesson I really had to learn, something I talk about in the book, and I say every day in my meditation is, I am you and you are me, and we are in different circumstances. I always have to remind myself that. And the reality of the situation is, I could sit here all day being like, well, if my kid ever came out to me, I would say this, this, and that. I'm lying because if I was born in a different country, in a different place, never having met a queer person, I might have done even worse than my parents. I might have been horrible. Mm -hmm. And so that's not giving them credit for their circumstances. You know, I've really just learned you got to meet people where they are and you Mm -hmm. can't expect them to be where you are. That's just not going to happen. Yeah. What would you say to people who say, I don't get all this queer stuff. I don't get this transgender. I don't get this they, Mm -hmm. she, him. I would say that, first of all, I, I think often people's response to that is educate yourself and anger, and mm-hmm. I don't think that's right either. I think it's, if you made an effort to understand it, you would also understand yourself better. Because a lot of what we see in other people is because of what we have in ourselves. And so learn about other people, learn about yourself. And I can tell you that this, this is not going anywhere. This is how people are born and this is how people express themselves and we should be doing everything we can to move towards that direction to have more types of people and more types of expression and so uh, educate yourself and there's lots of resources to do that Mm. that's great yeah so in this idea of like be a triangle Mm -hmm. you talk a lot about your relationship with yourself and relationship with the universe Mm how has your relationship with yourself changed in the last couple years I think I have given myself permission to be a human more and more. And what I mean by that is I had a period of life, again, that same period of hustling from 2010 to 20, 2016, whatever it was, one definition of success that would not waver. It was success means pulling all-nighters, doing the emails anytime, traveling wherever you need to travel. Just it doesn't matter how you feel or how tired you are. Success means pushing through and accomplishing your goals. And you were making millions of dollars. Correct. Millions of views, millions of dollars, amazing accomplishments, everything. I'm on my fourth, fifth vision board. So I'm not saying that it didn't work. It did. And I'm also not saying that I regret that period. I don't. I'm in a different place now, though, where I understand not that I was wrong, but that there are different definitions of success. So now I still am accomplishing a lot of things on my vision board, and I'm still very well off. But it's not at the expense of my mental health as much. It's not at the expense of my friendships and my personal life, I understand that, hey, me having a really great meditation today is success. Mm-hmm. The only would have never thought that. Me spending really great quality time with someone and getting to actually know them and being present is really successful. That's mm-hmm. a successful day to me. So yeah. I've just, I've, I've given myself permission to unsubscribe from ideas that don't serve me, come up with new ways of thinking and letting go of these things I used to be so attached to. And are you sharing that with your audience? Because I think that there is, you know, just reams of literature that explain the ways in which spending time on your phone Mm -hmm. and consuming content Mm -hmm. and scrolling and posting and commenting and waiting to see how commented on you is just so detrimental Mm -hmm. to mental health. And I feel like nobody's going to listen to that uh, from anybody but someone like you. I have been really vocal about it. I especially, not only in the book, but in a lot of interviews, I say that, especially during the pandemic, I actually deleted all social media off my phone for like six months. I didn't do anything. Wow. I was like, I'm not checking it. I got back so much time in my day. I was so much more present. I was so much happier. I was spending my mind on things that I actually thought deserved my attention, as opposed to when you're scrolling, you're like, oh, anything that happens, I'll put my energy here. I know. I'll put it's my like, energy shiny here. object, shiny object. Once I felt like I was in a better place, I slowly integrated it back into my life. So I have social, some social media on my phone. 
But the second I, I find myself mindlessly scrolling, I have no problems deleting it off my phone again. See, social media is a tool that we're supposed to use. It's not supposed to use us. I know, and right? it does use it us. It does use us. I mean, us, nine though. times out of 10, it is using us. <laughs> I know, 100%. Yeah. So I'm very vocal about that. And this is coming from someone who's made a job off of social media. I think it's great. I think it gives a voice to people that don't have a voice. It brings communities together. It educates. But it is a double-edged sword. We cannot yeah. pretend like it is not. It yeah. needs, you need, there should be classes in school for kids on how to use social media. Yes. That is my belief. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, so I, I sometimes feel like you pick your emotion when you set your expectation. Mm -hmm. And you talk a lot about expectations in this. How have you changed your thinking about what we are entitled to and, and what we owe each other? I think um, years ago, I believed that, oh, I worked really hard on this thing. Why did it not work out the way I thought it should have worked out? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes <laughs> you don't work that hard on something and, it, and you exactly. get a big fat egg. Exactly. And I think this has a lot to do with the fact that I'm not a product of a viral video. A lot of my peers are. They made a viral video overnight. They got so many views and subscribers and they... You know, that's not my story. I was not that internet sensation. I was the every upload counted, every view counted, every subscriber mm -hmm. was earned. And so I've, I've been very used to working towards my goals. Once I moved to LA and my goals got bigger, that didn't always work out. I worked really hard on some auditions and I, I really, really tried and it didn't work out for me. And I got really mad and bitter. And then I saw people that were younger and they had longer hair than me. And they were even more, they had two snapbacks on their head. Yeah. <laughs> like they were just the next version of me that were getting more views and more support. And I got really bitter. I thought, no, this is, this can't be happening. It's not fair. I had to check my entitlement. It, the world has no rule book of, oh, you worked really hard in this division, you're going to, no. Of course you can work hard and hope for the best. But realistically, when I look at my parents, like nothing was ever given to them. And they worked so, so hard and were often never rewarded for their work, you know? And so it's just, I kind of had to sit myself down and say, look at your history, look at your family, look at your world, like stop being entitled. And so my number one thing that I check myself on is entitlement, is making sure that yes, you can work hard and hope for the best, but really and truly nothing is owed to us. And I think another big part of that is I've had the privilege of traveling to a lot of places and I meet so many people who have so much potential and are so smart. And they are never given even half of the opportunity that I am. And when you meet people like that, you realize that is the world. Like mm -hmm. as, it, it truly, as the cliche goes, life is unfair. It truly is. And I don't say that to be pessimistic. I don't say that because I want to be a Debbie Downer. I said that because that's the contract we have with the universe. And that realization has allowed me to be more grateful in my life. Where no, I'm not having a bad day because everyone is against me. I'm having a bad day because that's life. And mm -hmm. no one said it was going to be a good day. And yeah. if I want to change that, that's up to me. It's not up to all these other external forces. Yeah, I have that. I write books and I have that feeling every time I read a really beautiful book. Mm -hmm. And I'll say to someone, have you heard of this? And they say no. And I think, this book is so good. Yeah. No one's heard of it. Like, how could that be? Mm -hmm. And it's like, there's talent everywhere. Like, right. so many people. Mm -hmm could please so many of us yeah. and could entertain us and could give us useful thoughts. And it's very few that actually get to do it. It's also just this greater idea of questioning the ideas we have about things, you know, AKA expectations is what are you basing that on? Yeah. What's your little story? What's the thing that you created in your brain convincing you that today was supposed to go a certain way because of why? Right. So right. I started to question that. Perhaps it is best to just not have expectations and just to be present in the moment. Whatever is supposed to happen is going to happen. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think that too. I feel like um, the, the advanced move is to start to notice when you're building mm -hmm. a little narrative yep. before it can disappoint you on the back end. Absolutely. It's like, oh God, I'm doing it. And that's been tough because I'm such a big believer of visualization. You know, before you do a speech, anything, you go through all the motions and you have a certain right. idea of how it's right. going to go. I still do that. But when it doesn't work that way, right. I don't become mad at external forces. I don't become, I try my best not to be like, oh, why didn't it go the way? I go, Or to oh. say it's not fair. Exactly. I realize that the only reason I think it's not fair is because I set that expectation. Right. And so that's in my control. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So there's a thing that I don't know how well known it is, but it's called Burning Man. And these people go to the desert and it's a gift economy. No, there's no money exchanged yeah. and whatever. And you, and you bring it up in um, via triangle because it's an example of how good it feels to help others. Can you talk about service and how you think yes. about it? Before I say this, I just love how you position this question. I'm just like, our demographics are so different and I love it. Yeah. There's this thing called Burning Men. And then I'm going to post and be like, there's this thing know. called television where this is going to um, be. There's this thing called PBS. Yeah. And it's on a television set. Yeah. I love that you explained Burning Men. This is my favorite thing ever. Yeah. Um, sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> I just love that you explained Burning Man right now. I just wasn't sure. Oh, that's I knew what it freaking was, amazing. I just wasn't sure. Oh, that's really good. That's um, great. So you you get at this idea of like helpers high mm-hmm. and and service. Yes. So how do you think about service? Like in what ways are you serving and what ways are you being served? I think service is something that is not thought about enough or talked about enough. Mm-hmm. It's the best part of how we're made, in my opinion. Doing good to others literally makes you feel good. Like, mm-hmm. that design is genius. That's the universe's genius design. It's like, if I help you, you'll be helped and I will feel good. So I should keep helping you because you'll be helped and I'll feel good. We ignore that way too often because we, we go to all these other social media or vices, whatever it is, to have that same good feeling that we could just get from helping people. Because of that, I do consider service such a big part. It should be a big part of any person's life. Main reason being, I don't think anyone can be their full, authentic, superhero self unless they feel the best version of themselves. And I don't think anyone can feel the best version of themselves if they are not getting the happiness they get from helping other people. Yeah. You know? What's your favorite volunteer gig? What's your favorite donation? Like, where, where do you... So I haven't had a chance to do this as often as I would like, but hopefully if I become more famous, that will change. But you seem very I am, famous to me. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you for saying that. But I um, have had the privilege of fulfilling a few Make-A-Wish, Make-A-Wishes, oh. which has been my favorite thing. Oh, so okay. yeah, a kid that, you know, is ill and wants to have a birthday party with me or wants to come on set with me. I've thrown kids' birthday parties at my house, oh, you know, for them. So those those are special because I get to spend a full day with someone and really get to know them, and it's more than a photo op. And so those have been really, really special. I would love to fulfill more wishes. Yeah, that's cool. Well, yeah. believe me, you just said it on TV, so they're coming. There you go. Um, everything has a cost. Mm-hmm. You made a point of um, drawing that out in Via Triangle. What has your work cost you? My work, I'm going to give you a very honest answer. My work has cost me, and not always, but at moments, my mental health. I, getting into this industry, have had episodes of things that I didn't even know were possible (laughs) prior to me getting into this industry. Um, Definitely, I've struggled in my adult life with friendships Mm -hmm. and having friends that I can just call when I want to talk. I don't think I have any of those friends that I can call just when I want to talk. Because those types of relationships take time and effort. And that's hard to do when you travel a lot or when your schedule's so busy. Or honestly, just call myself out when you don't prioritize it. For so many years of my life, I thought, I don't have time for friendship because I have to do this work that is so important. Right. And it's a race. Exactly. I mean, the work you were doing was a race. Like, if it wasn't you, it was going to be someone else. Exactly. Um, So... Friendships, relationships, quality time with people that I really value. All things I'm trying to improve now, but to be honest, I did sacrifice. My physical health was a huge one. Uh The amount of travel I did in some periods of my life, I don't think anyone should do that to their body and back and mental health and what I was putting into my body, eating just whatever was quick and fast and doesn't matter, never thinking about it. Yeah. So when you say cost you your mental health, like Mm -hmm. how bad did it get? So it's, <laughs> I'll tell you this, two weeks ago, I was like, I have this intense feeling of something that I don't know what it is. And I was talking to my therapist about it. And she's like, that's called a panic attack. And I was like, ah, didn't know that, what that was. I always thought a panic attack was just like stress, having a lot of stress. And I was in a conversation. I've never talked about this, so surprise. But I was in a conversation and I was like, oh, I think I'm going to die right now. And I'm not going to be able to stop it. Bad one. Yes. So if you've not had one, which previously I hadn't, so I had no ideas, this feeling of you're going to die and there's no way you can stop this and everyone's going to be here and you're going to have to call an ambulance. It's just a spiral of panic. Yeah. N- never had those. And I talked to my therapist about it and she said, 
That is a result of always functioning on 10, always functioning up here, and then your nervous system just tipping into a, an area that it can't handle anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was two weeks ago. So mm-hmm. my work is still sacrificing things about my life. However, the thing I'm doing differently is I'm not ignoring it. Because I think for so many years of my life, I'd be like, oh, okay, cool, 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 don't worry about it. Since then, I've been like, no, need to meditate every morning. I've been slacking on that, need to do that. Yeah. Need to think about what I'm putting in my body. Like, at least I am, the, the step of improvement for me is I need to do something about it and I'm prioritizing doing something about it. Where it's sad to say in the past, I wouldn't even do that. Well, it's interesting because one of your big points in Via Triangle is like to get into a better relationship with yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a corner that can't be ignored. Yep. And... You know, it sounds like you're having plenty of reminders. Yes. That it, my life keeps me very accountable. <laughs> yeah. But I will say since writing this book, and I'm, I mean this so genuinely, this is not a promo. Yeah. <laughs> this is, if you want to buy the book, buy. This is not why I'm saying it. But since writing this book, um, not only have I, and this is connected, not only have I lost like 25 pounds because huh. I let go of so much stuff up here wow. that has allowed me to let go of just my other unhealthy habits, but I've had multiple people whether they just met me or whether they've known me for a long time, say, you seem really genuinely happy. Mm. I've had multiple people say that to me. And so really the things I've written in this book, I've genuinely used every single day in my meditation. Every day in my meditation, I say, relationship to yourself, relationship to the universe, understanding distraction, and implementing design. And I literally go through those four things every day in my meditation. Yeah. So it has really, really helped me. And the second I start to stray from that, life goes... And puts me right back on track. <laughs> uh-huh. Tell me about distractions. How do you think about them? So distractions are a huge thing in my life. I think I'm laser, laser focused when it comes to work. But when it comes to my gratitude and my patience and my values, I do get distracted very easily. And I think that is human nature. Like I said, I can pull an all-nighter writing something and you could talk to me and I can totally ignore you and be focused. But if I wake up very, very grateful and in a great mood, it doesn't take too much to steer me off that path. And in the book I write about, you know, I was doing one of my dream jobs. I, was, I had a late night show and I was going to set every day. And that's like a dream for me to go to set and work with a crew I love. And I woke up in such a good mood and I was driving to set. And then I got a phone call with some bad news and then there was traffic and then I was hungry. And in five minutes, I was like, my life is so hard and my job is stressful and everyone is annoying me and I wish I didn't have to go to work. And I was like, how did I get from this to this? so quickly. Because if I started in gratitude, that means all these other things just distracted me from where I initially was. And so on that car ride, I said, I'm going to try something different. I am not going to let this take me somewhere completely different. I'm going to label all of these things as distractions from where I actually want to be. So I said, this phone call is a distraction. Valid, but a distraction. My hunger, so valid, still a distraction. And when I started to label all of these things as distractions, it helped me get over them faster and back to where I wanted to be as opposed to having me live in this land of just being sad and bitter and ungrateful. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I kind of view life now, mm-hmm. is some distractions are so valid. Mental health is valid. Pain is valid. Hurt is valid. All valid. All should be processed. All should be taken care of. But a distraction from where I want to be in life, which is a place of happiness and gratitude. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the talk show. You, you took Carson Daly's slot. I did. And it, you were the first time. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. an incredible announcement. And it was so exciting yeah. for us on the outside. And I'm sure it was a thrill for you. How long were you in discussions about it? How long did it take to get to the first show? And then how long did it take before you started to think, oh, my God, I don't think this is going to hold? <laughs> wow. Oh, walk down memory lane. I was in discussions <laughs> for... No, honestly, not a couple months, which might sound okay. long, but it's no, not that, that long in yes. entertainment. Yes. Um, to be fully transparent, you're Please. getting a whole lot of gems I've never said before, by oh, the way. You're just your inviting face. You're a very comforting <laughs> face. Um, they asked me if I was interested in the show, and my initial instinct was— And you're was, 28 or something. Yeah. Sure. Uh, <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, let's go with that. Um, my initial instinct was, no. I've never said this before. My initial instinct was, I don't know about this. Why? Because it— I didn't grow up with late night television personally. It's not something I ever related to. You're so young. Or you my parents. Do you know who David Letterman is? I do. I do know all of these okay, people, good. but I think it had to do a lot with the fact that my parents didn't really watch late night television, so I was never raised with it 
on screen. Sure, sure. Um, and we, so didn't, I, we didn't watch Letterman with our parents either. Right, okay. We'll talk about <laughs> or, this. Or anyone. Or I'll anyone. explain this to you. Yes, after. okay, perfect. Um, so I was like, I don't know if this seems like a really big commitment. I don't know if I want to do this. I want to act and I want to be in movies and all this stuff. And so I was like, I don't know. And it kind of just sat like that for a while. And I then, bet your agent knew. I bet your agent was like, uh, yeah, well, we're going to do well, it. I'll talk to her. Then I got a call from my agent and from other people that explained to me kind of the historicness of this and what this could mean. For sure. And what this has meant. And I thought, well, I'm really passionate about paving the path for my community, for people of color, for women of color, for the Punjabi community. I'm really passionate about that. And so if I can work really hard and make a difference in that sense, then yes, I will do it. And that's what tipped me over the edge to do it, is to really just make it be a first and pave this path and try to break a glass ceiling. Um, until the first show was about six, seven months, probably of planning, prepping, figuring out all the things. And did you feel like you liked where it was going creatively and that you had enough control to make it? I was on the fence, admittedly. Uh-huh. I quickly realized that with the resources that time slot had, it was going to be very difficult. Because sometimes, even in the planning of episodes, I was like, I don't think that's good. And I don't think that's funny. And I was like, oh, there's kind of nothing we can do about it because this is what we got. Right. And so it, I loved talking to people, and I loved certain parts of it. Or certain parts of it, I was like, I just don't know how this is going to work or play. And that was a really new, frustrating feeling for me because I'd always been in control of my content prior to that. Um, so I'd say... Pretty quickly, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. When they gave me a second season, I, of course, was like, let's do it. Because again, in the back of my mind, if I'm being really honest with you, Kelly, I would have tortured myself for an infinite amount of years if it meant paving the path for my community, if it meant breaking glass ceiling. I would have tortured myself. And so it was almost a blessing that we parted ways when we did. I think it saved me in some ways because I would have just kept doing that and kept digging myself into a hole. Good for you. Thank you. We also have a little speed round. All right, let's do it. Speed round. Let's do it. So haven't I been doing a speed round this whole time? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, Lily Singh, first concert. It was a Bollywood concert, Madhuri Dixit. I know you don't know who that is, but icon. Best live performance you've ever seen. Okay, Pink. Have you ever seen Pink live? No, is she great? She's like hanging by her appendix and like spinning and belting up. Water. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Definitely Pink. Last book that blew you away. Uh, Tell Me How to Be by Neil Patel. It was actually the first select of my book club called Lily's Library. And it was a story with a mother and son who are just like meeting each other in this beautiful place. It was so emotional and awesome. (laughs) If your high school did superlatives, what would you have been most likely to become? I do think they did. And I do think they said that most likely to either to be a performer. I think that was me. Oh, right on. They (laughs) saw you. They saw you before you saw yourself. That's right. What's your go-to mantra for hard times? Don't forget to have fun. When's the last time you cried? <laughs> a few days ago. Mm. Uh, I was homesick. I've been traveling for two weeks, and I was in a dark hotel room. It's a very first-world privilege problem. And I was just like, I just want my bed and to be home, and I cried. What's something big you've been wrong about? That there's only one way to succeed. Mm-hmm. If you could pass one law or overturn one Supreme Court case? It would be any decisions that affect a group of people. They need to be part of the decision-making process. I feel like this is a very common-sense fundamental thing. If you're making laws about women and their bodies or about a group of people culturally, they need to be involved in that decision-making. I feel like that doesn't happen. Yeah, I think that's a really good law. Yeah, it's very simple to understand. If your mother wrote a book about you, what would it be called? Nothing surprises me anymore. Mm. If you could say four words to anyone, who would you address and what would you say? I would tell everyone it's not that serious. There are some things that are serious that deserve our attention, but not everything does. And when we treat everything so seriously, I feel like it takes energy and attention away from things that actually really need to be changed, from the real suffering, from the real issues of the world that need our attention. If we treat everything so seriously, then I don't think we give those things enough attention. Lily Singh, you're, you're like the discovery of a lifetime. You're such what? a joy to talk Thank to. You're, you're so wise. Thank you. Thank you so you're much. awesome. Thank you for having me. Here are my takeaways from my conversation with Lily Singh. Number one, whether you know it or not, you pick your emotion when you set your expectation. Number two, we all need a belief system that is not at the mercy of our current mood. 
Number three, dismiss the younger generation at your peril. Number four, before taking on the next thing, consider the costs and prioritize mental health when you do the accounting. Number five, God willing, our children will indeed come to see that we did our very best. Number six, in modern life, non-attachment means giving yourself permission to unsubscribe from ideas that don't serve you. Number seven, there should be classes taught in schools on how to use social media because at the moment, it's using us more than we are using it. Number eight, check your sense of entitlement regularly. Nothing is owed to us. Number nine, the best part of how we're made, the genius of our design, is that doing good makes you feel good. And number 10, LGBTQ, it's not going anywhere. In fact, it's always been here. So lean in. I want to thank PBS and let you know that you can watch every episode of Tell Me More anytime you like on pbs.org slash Kelly. I also want to thank the John Templeton Foundation and the Gordon and Luli Gunn Foundation for supporting the PBS show and so much of my work. I want to thank Caroline Kinsey and Katie Hodgman and, of course, Lily Singh. The team at Kelly Corrigan Wonders, that's technical producer Dean Kateri, producer Tammy Stedman, and Garrett Peters, who mixed today's interview. Our interns, Cece Clark, Margaret Faust, Maddie Malin, and you for listening, for sharing, for quoting us widely. We'll be back on Friday with a new For the Good of the Order and on Sunday with a new episode of Thanks for Being Here. Be sure to join us next time for another episode of Kelly Corrigan Wonders. Hey, I have a quick favor to ask. We are conducting a survey to get to know you, our audience, better. It won't take long and it's easy to find. Visit survey.prx.org slash Kelly. That's survey.prx.org slash Kelly. Thank you.